1: So you can connect with candidates faster, and listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/history-extra. Just go to indeed.com/history-extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway.
0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. He was the Napoleon of Fleet Street a 20th century press baron whose media empire included the Daily Mail, the Daily Mirror, the Times and the Observer. This immensely influential man was Lord Northcliffe and he used his power to bring down prime ministers and help Britain defeat Germany in the First World War. A hundred years after his death in 1922, the historian Andrew Roberts has written a new biography of Northcliffe and he reflects on this remarkable life in conversation with Rob Attar.
3: So, Andrew, towards the end of The Chief, you describe Lord Northcliffe as the greatest newspaper man in British history. For those of our listeners who may not know too much about him, I wonder if you could briefly summarise some of his achievements.
4: Well, I call him the greatest because he, at the time of the outbreak of the Great War, owned 40% by circulation of the uh, British press. And he was the man who founded the Daily Mail in 1896, who founded the Daily Mirror in 1908, who bought the Observer and also owned the Times. So four great newspapers that we still have today uh, were either saved by him or actually started by him. And uh, saved from bankruptcy in the in the case of uh, The Times and the Observer, so you have somebody who uh, was a great newspaperman. Um, I do also point out though in that uh, introduction that although he was a great man, he wasn 't a particularly nice man uh, he had He had character flaws and and failings that were enormous but um, said against that, what I argue in the book is that he put forward ideas that were absolutely essential to winning the First World War.
3: Great. So there's quite a lot of things to unpack there. We'll try and go through some of them as we continue this conversation. Um, I wonder if we could actually start, though, with looking at his early life, because unlike many other luminaries of the age, he actually came from a relatively modest background, didn't he? What can you tell us about his upbringing?
4: Well, I think uh, less than modest. I think um, it might be said. He, uh, his father, was an alcoholic uh, schoolteacher in Dublin, um, an Englishman who was uh, who was working in Dublin, who met his mother, who was Anglo-Irish, and very much the matriarch of the family because when his father went off drinking, she was the one who brought up the eleven children, and. Um, and Northcliffe worshipped and idolised his mother for the rest of his life. And um, he they were incredibly poor. Uh, There's one point, actually, ironically enough, when um, she had to wrap her children, the youngest children, up in newspapers to keep them warm at night. And so it was a uh, it was a it was a real hardscrabble existence uh, in his early years. And he wanted to make money partly so that he didn't have to worry about that kind of thing um, ever again for the rest of his life. But he wasn't driven by money. He was driven by ambition and, uh, and power.
3: And so, yeah, so he despite this even, as you say, less than modest background. He was only about 30 when when he founded the Daily Mail and and it became a huge success. How would you explain such a... A quick rise to prominence um
4: I'd say it was because he didn't go to Oxford or Cambridge he instead uh, decided to become a journalist at the age of 15 and he in that uh, Victorian Fleet Street uh, way you know there was there was a lot of fascination for reading um, there was a newly literate uh, class um, I mean everybody in in uh, in Britain under the 1870 Education Act had to be able to learn to read Read and write, and so you. By the eighteen nineties, mid eighteen nineties, um, you had this extraordinary, um, huge new population of people who wanted not only to read newspapers and find out what was happening in the world, but also wanted to be entertained. And what? Northcliffe was brilliant at doing was to make journalism interesting. He invented the short paragraph. He invented the grabbing headline. He got rid of the pages and pages of uh, of, um, parliamentary reports and so on that people found boring, and instead put in snappy, um, entertaining paragraphs. And so people read his papers.
3: And am I right to say that he actually also worked in magazines for a while before he began his newspaper career? It was magazines
4: that he made his money, in fact. Um, he He started off a magazine called Answers, the long... Long version is answers to correspondence about every subject under the sun, and uh, and they were they were a lot of them quite frankly sn- silly sort of snippets of uh, of factual information which were interesting and amusing. But uh, uh, that's the way that he and his brother Harold um, Harold Harmsworth, who later became the first Viscount and Rothermere, um, made their money. And it wasn't until they had uh, they were selling over a million. Um, copies of their magazines weekly, that they that then turn to newspapers.
3: So the Daily Mail is one of the publications perhaps he's most associated with. What were his intentions for the paper when he founded it?
4: He wanted to make what he called a penny newspaper for a halfpenny, uh, whereby um, people, completely regardless of class, uh, but appealing very much to, um, to the sort of um, newly- uh, powerful, middle lower middle classes and middle classes would read a newspaper that was patriotic, um, that was not uh, under the thumb of the establishment, that would uh, take the people's views, and um, and which would be read in vast vast numbers. You know, it was very much intended to be a mass newspaper. Um, he started off actually. With 60 dummy runs, hugely expensive way to go about it, uh, to make sure that when the newspaper actually did finally launch in May 1896, that it was going to be a success. He took out a huge advertising campaign. um, Railway bridges were plastered with adverts for the Daily Mail. And so it really was intended to be a uh, a really a, a world changer. And um, the extraordinary thing is how immediate it was. The first day it sold 376,000 copies and very soon it was uh, it was selling a million copies daily.
3: So as we discussed earlier, not only did he have the Mail, he also had the Mirror, the Times. And how powerful a media figure was he? How far did he dominate the media landscape?
4: He's the most powerful media figure in in. British history uh he dominated it far more than any other single newspaperman man uh, has before or since and um and he made sure politicians knew about that you know he did, he really would uh, throw his weight around he was instrumental in bringing down um Herbert Asquith and his uh, and his government in 1916, and bringing David Lloyd George to the premiership, he was um, constantly fighting battles on every front. He had cam- newspaper campaigns that would um, that would be immensely influential politically. Uh, sometimes he failed. He tried to get the British people to wear a new kind of hat, uh, for example, which uh, didn't come off. But overall, it was a Astonishing how um, powerful he was.
3: So it's fair to say that he used his um, media influence to try to shape causes that mattered to him. He didn't give his editors and journalists full independence.
4: No, certainly not. Um, he had to with the Times at the beginning because of the deal that he'd struck in buying the Times in March 1908, and it wasn't really until the summer of 1911 that he was able to establish dominance over the um, editorial of the of the Times. And even there, he had to tiptoe. Uh, luckily, he had an editor in Geoffrey Dawson, who was originally called Geoffrey Robinson, who was at the beginning. Um, Willing to interact with him. They later fell out and, uh, and um, Dawson resigned. But nonetheless, uh, there, was a, there was a certain to and fro when it came to the Times. But as far as the Mail was concerned and the other papers, they um, did what they were told.
3: Now, in the modern day, of course, there are often concerns expressed about media barons having an undue influence on other aspects of British life, British politics. Were those same concerns expressed around Northcliffe?
4: All the time. Yes. Um, the, uh, the He was denounced in the House of Commons on a regular basis by very brave MPs, frankly, who, of course, could be certain that for the whole of the rest of their careers, they would be lambasted uh, for, uh, um, for anything that cropped up, owing to the fact that you didn't want to make an enemy of Lord Northcliffe. And uh, even people who... Uh, who were really serious and substantial politicians like Winston Churchill and Lord Curzon and others would pay court to Northcliffe. They would come down to his uh, beautiful Tudor house in uh, in Surrey, um, and they would uh, they would you know treat him in a in a hugely respectful. Way. It didn't actually often make that much difference with regard to what he said about them. You know, he was somebody who had that kind of level of power that he thought uh, um, that he was, in a sense, you know, above what politicians might say.
3: Now, the First World War is arguably the defining episode of his life and and perhaps of of your book too. Um, Prior to the war, at what point did Northcliffe become concerned about the threat from Germany? well this
4: was one of his his big campaigns um he recognized from very early on really from the 1890s that the level of spending that the germans were willing to um put forward especially for their navy um had no defensive Uh, implications at all. The only reason that the Germans were willing to pay this vast amount of money year on year in their naval laws um, was to create a navy that could threaten the Royal Navy in the North Sea. And uh, he was a very big Navy League man. He was uh, somebody who actually had tremendously advanced ideas about the use of aeroplanes, for example, in in warfare. He didn't believe that the British government was spending enough money, certainly on uh, on. Investigating whether airplanes could be used, and so he it was one of the big campaigns of his newspapers that we needed to be ready for the um, for the coming war. Uh, of course, as a result, he was accused of being a warmonger and uh, and blamed for the outbreak of the first world war by a lot of people because uh, he was he was very much in favor of the arms race with germany um, but uh, I take a much more uh, positive Attitude. I, I think that uh, a newspaperman doesn't start a war. It's very much German rearmament that um, that worried Britain, perfectly understandably.
3: And then, once war had broken out, how did Northcliffe uh, and his papers seek to aid the British war effort? They sought
4: to um, aid it in in every way that you can imagine. It was in, in one of uh, Northcliffe's papers that that uh, famous um, Lord Kitchener poster um, appeared the your country um, uh, needs you poster it was um, one of his journalists who popularized there's a long way to tipperary the song that was sung by the uh uh, the morale-boosting song that was sung by the troops, but on a more serious level, he um, he attacked the lack of munitions that the British uh, had in the opening battles of the First World War. Um, he was highly critical, personally highly critical of Lord Kitchener. Wrote a um, devastating article in the Daily Mail that led because. Kitchener, the secretary for war was still very popular led to the daily mail being burned on the publicly on the steps of the stock exchange and uh and and banned and so on so it was the most extraordinary uh and, and very brave moment where circulation plunged until it was pr- shown that he'd been right that the uh that the army didn't have the correct munitions and didn't have enough of them anyhow so Um, So he did that. His newspapers campaigned vigorously for mass conscription. Again, we couldn't have won the First World War without mass conscription, but the Liberal government didn't want to bring it in in the initial stages. Um, Compulsory conscription, that is. Uh, He fought for a much smaller war cabinet. Um, which turned out to be uh, the right thing to do, not just in the First World War, but also in the Second World War. And he was an um, advocate for um, food rationing, which again turned out to be the right decision once the German u boats started to strangle um, Britain and again in the Second World War, of course, most of these things that he fought for, and um, a national government rather than just a liberal government to fight the war. Most of these things are things that you see Winston Churchill uh, and Neville Chamberlain imposing right at the beginning of the Second World War, and so they are um, they are tremendously important things that the. Uh, Northcliffe Press had been advocating far, far earlier than the um, than the actual outbreak of war.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: The Germans minted a special um, bronze medal that uh, showed Northcliffe as Satan, and, uh, which which Northcliffe himself was thrilled by. As soon as he was able to buy one after the war, he uh, he put it on the mantel shelf at Northcliffe
1: House, where it has stayed ever since.
2: connect with a licensed therapist by text phone or video call start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime let it out with BetterHelp. visit betterhelp.com history extra today to get 10% off your first month that's BetterHelp, help help.com history extra
1: life is a highway And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches, but there's only one Mc Crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
3: And as you you said a little bit earlier in the conversation, he was instrumental in the downfall of Asquith and the uh, replacement by David Lloyd George. Could you just tell us a little bit more about how that came about? It was two stages, really. In, in May
4: 1915, the Aswith government had to bring the Conservatives into, the, into what became a national government. And then in December 1916, um, Asquith was essentially forced to resign and uh, was replaced by his Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George. And for the, pretty much the entirety of the war, the Northcliffe Press had been pointing out the weaknesses of, um, of Asquith as a war leader and, um, and the advantages of having an extremely energetic and dynamic figure like uh, David Lloyd George. It started off fairly sotto voce for patriotic reasons, but as the um, as the losses, especially, of course, the losses on the Somme Offensive from the 1st of July, 1916 onwards, uh, became more obvious and more severe, uh, it became an imperative for Northcliffe to get rid of um, Asquith, even though he was um, a supporter of... Uh, Sir Douglas Haig and the and the and the policy essentially of attrition that Haig represented.
3: Now, one interesting aspect of Northcliffe in the war that you talk about in the book is how he was viewed by the Central Powers, and actually, is it fair to say they they also recognised his importance to the British war effort? Oh, more than the more than the British do actually. Yes, um, yes. The the Kaiser said
4: uh, that Northcliffe's propaganda during the war was uh, a colossal in his word, colossal reason for why Germany lost. Now, in a sense, of course, he was looking around for scapegoats uh, for uh, explaining why Germany lost uh, rather than um, taking on the blame himself. But nonetheless, it was um, the Germans minted a special um, coin, a, a sort of medal, uh, bronze medal that uh, showed Northcliffe as Satan, um and uh which which Northcliffe himself was thrilled by. As soon as he was able to buy one after the war, he uh he put it on the mantel shelf at Northcliffe House in uh the he- Daily Mail headquarters, where it has stayed ever since. Um it's um it's indicative also some of the magazine articles about northcliffe and the and the cartoons of him in the uh german press especially when he became director of enemy propaganda in uh in 1918 um where he did a very good job and a very aggressive job in trying to undermine german morale um sort of you know black black operations as it were um he was um he was absolutely loathed by uh, by the germans during the war
3: i think it's fair to say that you'd view his um wartime achievements very positively and that he had a positive impact on British war effort. But you do also in the book point out some of the flaws of his character. I wonder if you could highlight what you see as perhaps the biggest flaws he had. Well, the
4: biggest flaw, in my view, was his anti-Semitism. Um, he was... Um... Also very anti Scottish um, for some reason that he never really explained. Um, you know he would take it out on uh, on on Jews and, and Scots. He was uh, personally you know vicious and unpleasant in that way. Um, he had a very. Turbulent private life. Um, I don't think it's right to uh, to take exception to people about that. By the way, I, I, I'm not a historian who sort of gets terribly excited about uh, about whether people are unfaithful to their wives and so on. But his is very strange in that, as well as taking a string of mistresses, he had one particular mistress, an Irish lady called Kathleen Rowan, who um, persuaded him to pay for three children that she might well have implied to him were um, his, but which DNA that I've uh, persuaded their descendants to take proved that they were neither his nor hers. And so um, I think they were adopted from France. And uh, whether he knew or not that they weren't his um, is is a moot point, but uh, it's a fascinating story about where she came from and 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 the and the interactions that she had with him. And as I say, she she was only one of of several mistresses. Um, so yes, there's, there are new and interesting things to say about uh, about Lord Northcliffe, largely because the Rothermere family allowed me into Lord Northcliffe's uh, archive, which hadn't been used for fifty years since the previous book longer than 50 years actually it was published in the 1950s uh this previous book which um which was to quite a degree a bit of a whitewash of him frankly
3: now another area where he could be singled out for criticism is his imperialist views and i suppose this is quite a difficult one for a historian to handle because at the time that might have been quite commonplace but now we would of course view some of these things more critically how do you contend with this aspect of his character
4: well yes he was a he was a very strong imperialist. He was a friend of Cecil Rhodes. Um, he believed in the uh, British Empire getting wider and wider um, He actually towards the end of his life recognized that there were very significant threats to the British Empire. He appreciated uh, uh, Gandhi being an important threat uh, but what he was was a realistic imperialist he um he recognised that that imperial stories sold newspapers. He was very uh, much in favour of the um, of the British stance in the Boer War. In fact, he attacked the Unionist government for not being more proactive in, in fighting that war. Um, but by the end of the first world war, and especially when he went on a huge tour of the empire in uh, 1921 and early 1922, um, a round-the-world tour of visiting various parts of the empire. and He came back very uh, depressed about the state of the empire. He, he could see the writing on the wall, really, for the empire, which is interesting because, of course, 1922, many historians do see as the, as the point at which it starts to decline. So, uh, so I think he was, um, he was realistic about an empire that he n- nevertheless very much uh, loved and
3: admired. 1922 was also actually the year of Northcliffe's death. And I believe you've done some research into his final illness, which may challenge previous views of this.
4: That's right. Yes, he, was, um, he died of uh, malignant endocarditis, which is a horrible disease, which he picked up um, on his world tour. Actually, we don't know where or, or when, but it sent him mad and um, progressively more and more mad. And of course, being a, he he was, he wasn't a megalomaniac, but he was a, as a businessman, but he was a very tough businessman who did not expect to be contradicted very much. And so actually in the early stages, nobody wanted to, you know, point out that the chief, which is what they all called him. And therefore what I've called the book was, um, uh becoming even more sort of autocratic the, as uh, than than usual and it slowly dawned on his staff that actually he had gone mad and there's a point where he went to uh to france and there was one point where he's at Boulogne railway station and shouting uh, to everybody on the on the platform that God was a sodomite um, and uh, various other things. He waved a revolver around. It, uh, uh, they later discovered it was unloaded, but he didn't know that it was unloaded. Um, one of his uh, assistants very sensibly uh, unloaded it um, before he uh, he started waving it at his. At his doctors, and and he died uh, on the roof of Number One Carlton Gardens, which is the Foreign Secretary's Grace and Favor House in uh, in Central London. Um, and uh, yes, and he by that stage he had completely lost his mind.
3: And what happened to his media empire following his death?
4: The Daily Mail stayed in the Harmsworth family and indeed is still there today. The present Viscount Rothermere um owns that the Times was sold to the astor family and um and so they Ran that, we, and, and incidentally, Geoffrey Dawson was brought back um, after his resignation to edit the Times again, and um, and proved to be a disastrous editor later on in his career when he supported appeasement, of course, the appeasement of Adolf Hitler, which I don't believe that Northcliffe would have supported had he stayed alive, owing to the fact that um, he hated the Germans as much as he hated Scotsmen and, and Scotsmen and Jews. Um, he believed, actually, when he was going mad, he believed that the, it had been the Germans who had poisoned his ice cream, and that was the reason that he uh, that he was um, suffering. But uh, oh, and by the way, also something I ought to have mentioned in the last question was, of course, lots of people at the time thought it was syphilis that was killing him, and um, because several of the symptoms at the beginning, at least, of this madness can come from syphilis, but actually, uh, syphilis does kill you in a in a in a different way towards the end. Uh, and and that and some various other doctors' analyses uh, make it clear that, in fact, it was malignant endocarditis, not syphilis.
3: Northcliffe, Lord Northcliffe died almost exactly 100 years ago. How do you think he, if he could be miraculously brought back to life, would view the press 100 years on?
4: I think he'd be quite impressed with, um, with a lot of it. I think uh, the fact that the Daily Mail is still... A, a huge i mean globally it's uh, i think the second biggest online newspaper in the world after the people's daily of of uh Beijing. Um, So he'd be impressed with that. uh, He would love the fact that uh, Rupert Murdoch owns uh, and runs the Times newspaper, owing to the fact that uh, Rupert Murdoch's father, Keith Murdoch, was a protégé of Northcliffe. In fact, he was so much a protégé that he was nicknamed Lord Southcliffe. Um, He he admired um, Keith Murdoch later, Sir Keith Murdoch, hugely because of uh, Murdoch's opposition to the Gallipoli campaign, which um uh, of course led to to the Times denouncing that uh, expedition uh, and therefore led to Lord Northcliffe's long friendship with Winston Churchill uh, breaking up in in uh, in disarray and disaster um, but he thought that the the bravery that um that Keith Murdoch had shown in denouncing that expedition was uh, was really admirable, and stayed very friendly with him for the rest of his life. So I think he'd be immensely uh, uh, chuffed to see that uh, that Keith Murdoch's son owned the paper that he uh, that he loved and was forced to obviously in his in his will to sell.
3: Now I suppose anyone listening who's thinking about modern day press barons would probably think of Rupert Murdoch first of all. Do you see many parallels between Murdoch and Northcliffe?
4: Yes, I do. In fact, I, I think, um, the way in which neither of them see themselves as establishment figures and, and rightly so, I mean, um, uh, that's an obvious uh, one. I think the way that they don't allow people, um, friendships, you know, and, and, uh, and personal capacities to get in the way of the story. Um, the story is all, they put the readers first. They want the truth to be out there. And, uh, even though it might be, um, uh, personally or politically inconvenient, you know the, the the story comes first, and I think that's something that Northcliffe very much passed on to Keith Murdoch, who has passed on to Rupert Murdoch. Um, I think they, of course, their politics are both right wing uh, and uh, very um, strongly anti-socialist in the uh, in the way that uh, Lord Northcliffe very much was. Uh, he he allowed Labour people to put their point of view in the in the uh, paper. In fact, it's very interesting in the 1918 election that um, several leaders of the Labour Party were allowed to write for the Daily Mail. Um, But um, that might have been partly because by that stage, uh, Northcliffe had fallen out with David Lloyd George and wanted to bring him down uh, disastrously and, and as it turned out, uh, in vain. I also see quite a lot, of course, in the um, in the form of journalism, you know, journalism as entertainment, journalism sh- with short paragraphs that grabs the attention and, and sort of never lets it go. I think that is something that you see. There's very much less long form journalism, endless uh, repetition of what's been said in the House of Commons and so on. That uh, was typical of Victorian England and which you very rarely uh, get any longer. Lots of people say, rather sort of grandly, that they wish that there was more long form journalism. But um, the attempts that people have made to repeat it uh, never tend to sell because we just don't have the time. But, uh, that, yes, he's, uh, I think he would recognize the British press and be, um, and be proud of it. And he'd also be thrilled, of course, that papers like the Mirror and the Observer uh, still exist. You know, both of them um, nearly went bankrupt whilst he was um, bailing them out, and uh, and the fact that they're still here a hundred years after his death, I think he would uh, he'd be delighted at as well.
3: Then and now, the idea of having a single person with so much power over the media can be quite controversial. I mean, on balance, do you think someone like Northcliffe uh, paid a, had a positive impact on British society because he was able, perhaps, to stand up to the government whereas others couldn't have done? Or it, was it dangerous to give one man so much influence in the country without having been elected?
4: Well, you'd never have um, the Monopolies Commission allow one person to have 40% of the um, of the British press today. I mean, that would be a complete impossibility. So, you know, I, I, I am a believer in the... Uh, in, in competition, I do think it sharpens up product and uh, and energies uh, hugely. Um, equally, uh, I think that you know. There was one at the time when when Rupert Murdoch was criticised for uh, for interfering with his newspapers, and he said, "I don't interfere with them; I own them." You know, there's <laughs> there's, there's a difference. If you have the the preference shares that dominate a a company, then you should have every right to say whatever you like within the libel laws. And uh, I think it's very important for free speech in this country and the concept of free expression that we should have a wide um, and large number of newspapers from a varied. Uh, political background, and uh, and that was um, not something that Northcliffe was particularly interested in. He very much wanted newspapers that were going to uh, going to reflect his opinions. And but fortunately, fortunately, his his more repulsive opinions about Jews and Scots and so on, of course, he did not put into his newspapers. His newspapers weren't bigoted in that uh, sense.
0: That was Andrew Roberts. The Chief, The Life of Lord Northcliffe, Britain's Greatest Press Baron, is out now, published by Simon & Schuster.